poor. Let's get going. Alms for the poor. That's 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 what that's what I like to think about. Alms for the poor. I don't know uh, why people would give other each other arms, but uh, uh, but I guess you know it's just the society that we're living in. You know, alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. I guess I guess they need to way to defend themselves as well. You well, know. You got to have it, Jan, uh, because it costs an arm and a leg to get anything these days. Yeah, probably so. Probably so. Hey, welcome, everybody, to uh, Thinking Out Loud with Friends. 188 times we've gotten together, and you are invited to join us as well. So welcome, everybody. Uh, if you want to be part of the panel, uh, just um, all you got to do is DM me or anybody on the panel, and they will also give you an invite. Uh, everything today you'll hear is an opinion, so do your own research. And with that, I want to welcome everybody. Um, so we were just chatting about a million different things. One of the things we were chatting about was uh, old TV, old TV, uh, not the kind of box that you put in your living room, but the shows that were on TV. Wayne, did you ever get to watch um, like uh, Fractured Flickers or Rocky and Bullwinkle? Uh, no, I didn't watch those. I don't think uh, uh, the second the second one I think might have been um, televised here. The first one I don't well, know about. Well, when I was a kid, when I was a little kid, I'd come home from school every day, and I turn on the television and I would watch Rocky and Bullwinkle. And I love Rocky and Bullwinkle because even though it was for kids, there were so many double entendres for the adults in it. Because you were saying that you were watching Sesame Street, and that also was interesting. you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yes, Bert and Ernie were um, in the early episodes. Well, probably later, but I didn't watch as much of it. But the early episodes, Bert and Ernie were, might have been for kids, but it was bloody hilarious. <laughs> it was yeah. hilarious. Yeah, I would come home, I would watch uh, the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, and then followed, it was on Channel 11 in New York City, and then was followed by the Soupy Sales show. And I love Soupy Sales. I thought it was great. He was he was a wild guy. He was a little above his time, a little ahead of his time, not above his time. Had a, Dave, what did you used to watch when you got home from, from school? For me? Yeah, well, you watch TV? Yeah. Well, it depends on how far back you go. There was the Mickey Mouse Club. And then there was American Bandstand. And then before that, it was Rocky and Bullwinkle and with the fractured fairy tales and Sherman and his way back machine and all that. That was Jay Ward. He was wonderful. He yeah. wrote comedy for adults and for kids together. It was great. It was great. And I love Soupy Sales, you know, uh, but he got kicked off the air because he did some crazy things. Like uh, he said, all right, kids, now we want you tonight when your parents go to sleep, we want you to go into their bedroom Go into their pockets, take what you find in there, and send oh, it to me. <laughs> and send it to me. <laughs> Something I mean, that's, I'm paraphrasing. That's why he got fired. That one particular one is why he got fired. Yeah, I mean, he he, he used to say some double entente things like, you know, um, my wife doesn't make a, a great cherry pie, but she sure can make my cherry cream, you know, something like that. You know, my banana cream, that's what she would, you know. And he would do things like that and would get past the censors. So there you have it. Um, you mentioned, Wayne, you mentioned something that made me think. Anyway, how's everybody? How was everybody's Christmas? 
Good. Right. I went Good. to the one word answers work. <laughs> Instead of Barbenheimer, I did the purple Ferrari. <laughs> I saw the color purple in Ferrari on Christmas Day. And had Chinese food. <laughs> By the way, a hot pick. I'll give you a hot pick. If you have Netflix, Rebel Moon, really excellent. Very, very excellent. It's a sci-fi. Sci it's a la the Star Wars or Guardians of the Galaxy kind of thing. Uh, really good. Excellent acting. Really good sets and scenes. They spent a lot of money on it, so it looks like. And very worth the watch. Has anybody else seen it? Nope. No. Go see it. Rebel Moon. So, um, what else is going on? Who's got something they want to share? Uh, David, where did you go see uh, The Color Purple at? And how did you like it? Yeah, I went to Universal City Walk. Okay. And uh, I, th I thought it was great. You know, it's a musical now. It was oh, a it's a musical. Okay. Well, they, on Broadway, they turned it into a musical. And so this is the video, the film adaptation of the musical. And it was really well done. And this was done by Oprah and Steven Spielberg? Yeah. And directed by a woman from Ghana or a man from Ghana. The last it's interesting when you get to a point in your career where only your first name is enough for you to know who you're talking about. You know, Oprah, she doesn't need a last name anymore. You know, you have well, the name, name Oprah. Kind of like Jan. Yeah, like Jan, right? Yeah. Jan Cash, right? I, that's Not right, Janet Cash, baby, Janet Cash. Now I I, I lost the Monica Cash when I when I started Soundbroker. Um, although the company is called Cash Landy Pro Sales, that's the original, that's the real name of the company. But no, uh, too many good memories for the word for, for my name, you know. <laughs> As David could testify, he was he was there. I know nothing. Nothing. Uh, I see nothing. I know nothing. You know, hey, how I made it, how I made it out of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I have no idea. You know, that's for sure. I hardly remember being there. So that means I was there. You know. So is your story line up with Willie Nelson's that just came out this week? No, tell me about that. We didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. Uh, Willie Nelson came out. He he was describing about, you know, he, Took too many liberties too many times, and there's memory lapse throughout the, the the decades of performing. So, oh man, he used to imbibe on everything, just like we all did. I mean, just remember the days of the late '60s, '70s, and and early '80s was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, that's what that's what people were living, and now some people are paying the price for that. You know, for sure. But uh, the reality is, is it was a wonderful time. Uh, I right after the Vietnamese War ended, uh, you know, the Vietnam War ended, uh, you know, people were very prosperous. Uh, people were having a good time. Everybody, you know, it, it was just uh, it really was a, a really great time to be alive. I only, what I only you guys the, doing um, during that? The rock and roll bit of that three, Jan. Oh, man, you don't know what you missed. It's not too late. <laughs> No, no, it is. It is way too late. Yes, you, you, missed, too you, late. you missed the boat, buddy. You missed the boat, you know? I, no. And being in Hollywood too... during that period of time 
didn't hurt at all. I have to tell you, it didn't hurt. So, Jim, where was your, where was your house in in Hollywood? Ah, uh, well, I lived in a few places, but the most notable was uh, Whitley, the Whitley Terrace house. Dave lived there as well with me. Yes, I thought that that was the um, because I was going to go for a wander on the maps the other day, and I couldn't remember the the name because it was near the Hollywood Bowl. Is that correct? Yeah, right above the Hollywood Bowl. Well, Whitley Heights. It was the first Beverly Hills. Oh, right, yeah. The, um, how did and, you end up? Because you were renting there, weren't you? Yeah, but I'll tell you a story um, where there was a block party there once. It was a block. They, they, they had a block party. And one of my friends came up to me during the party, and he says to me, and I still remember this, he says, Bellini has nothing on these guys. <laughs> that was uh, that was how wild that neighborhood was. That he could say Fellini has nothing on these guys, and I knew exactly what he was talking about. It was wild. These people were wild. So was it a wild place, or as you said, they're wild, or was it was just party world? Oh, party time. I mean, like one of the one of the the guy that we ended up renting the uh, house from was named Amitson. David, do you know the story? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And he was a he was an heir to the Amundsen fortune, which of course the Amundsen they owned in the, the Los Angeles Times. And by I guess at about by 7 30, 8 o'clock at night, this guy was drunk as a skunk for the rest of the day. You know, and that was it. Uh, you know, that that's that was his life. And they were very decadent people there. Very, very, you know, people that lived up there were, were quite wealthy and very decadent. You know? They were so in... <laughs> let's put it this way. If they were if they weren't rich, they would have been considered crazy. But because they were rich, we had to call them eccentric. <laughs> so did you just rent part, parts of that house that he owned and he lived there as well? Is that correct? Or... Well, um, the truth be told is that we rented the whole house. And in that house, we there was like Michael, myself, Brad, and Terry at one point, and then David came in. It was a big house. It was a really big house. I ended up getting I ended up getting kicked out of the house, and David ended up getting my room. The roommates all uh, had a meeting and said I was just a little too wild to be living with them, so I needed to move out. Yeah, that house had four fireplaces and a ballroom. I'll kind of tell you how. And it was furnished with the original furnish from the forties. Parker was his name, right? Parker Robinson or something like that? Yep, Parker. That's right. Yep, yep. He drank himself May rest out in of peace. the house. He drank himself out of the house, and the bank took it over. And we found papers that the bank was now owning the house, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they rented it to us. And they gave it to us at a ridiculous price, furnished. Because when he drank himself out of it, the furniture was still in the house. He still actually owned the furniture. He just didn't own the house anymore. And they left it there. So we lived there for a few years with this antique 1920s Hollywood furniture in it. You know, uh, woven rugs, the whole thing. It was pretty wow. cool. 
Yeah, and we used to have parties there. I would say, you know, at least three times a month. And the whole Hollywood community, you know, the rock and roll Hollywood community would come because we were all in the rock and roll business. Every one of us were in the rock and roll business or wanted to be in the rock and roll business. At that time, I was in the record business. Yeah, I was working for RSO Records, I believe, or or maybe Bearsville Records, um, you know. So, I mean, here's something you guys don't know. I was fortunate enough to work for the manager of Janis Joplin and Bob Dylan in the band. Uh, Albert Grossman at Bearsville Records because uh, he owned Bearsville Records. Todd Rundgren was there as well. Uh, so I really had a, a a really good front row seat to a lot of activity at uh, in those days. And then my... I don't remember working for Bearsville. Oh, yeah. That was a fun job. That was a very... I was in the mailroom. I worked the mailroom. And then I, as I was working the mailroom... The L.A. music scene was really starting to, you know, really get ha really happening with the Motels, the Knack, uh, just to name a few of the bands that were that were happening out of out of L.A. Blondie and the King Bees and Paul Warren. And, and basically, I started going to the clubs and I became an A&R guy. And we got to, I got to sign a bunch of a uh, bunch of acts to RSO Records because basically they fired me at Bearsville, um, but I had the opportunity to uh, to negotiate uh, with the Knack. But uh, my friend Bruce Garfield, who ended up signing them to Capital, convinced them that it was a better choice for them. And for sure, it was. They did the right thing by going to Capital and not going to R. So, so congratulations to them. Um, anyway, well, I'd reckon, there's a little uh, piece of history yes, that you didn't know about me. Fantastic. They, um, I'm sure that when you and David and all the rest of them were having Party World, it, there was an awful lot of rock and roll discussion. Oh God, yes, there was. I mean, you know, um, one of our one of our temporary roommates, I guess, John Chesler, he was working for uh, J.D. Souther, and that time the Eagles were really happening, so we were involved in that scene. Um, David, you was working. Were you were still with Mandrill, or who were you with at that time? You were working with a lot of different bands. Muted. Dave, you're muted. This was Maryland Sound, so that was after. That was like the beginning of the Natalie Cole, Firefall, Neil Sedaka era for me, and then Tahoe. So. No, I was definitely an L.A. guy at that point. Well, and one of our one of our roommates, a guy by the name of Terry Shattuck, I just actually dreamt about him last night. Um, he had a band called Tranquility. And if you want to hear some really great music, uh, you could go on YouTube and go Tranquility, the band, um, really way ahead of his time. Um, I'll uh, maybe let's see who would you who who what what's a band that would be comparative? Uh, Pink Floyd, um, maybe Steely Dan. Uh, really nice melodic rhythms with great harmonies. I mean, um, but because of you know a lot of bands don't make it due to the fact that inner politics gets in the way and breaks them up. Well, in this case, their first tour they came to America. And their truck got stolen. 
and so all their equipment got stolen and the band started infighting with one another and it broke up the band. But Terry was was living in our in, in our house and he was painting houses at the time for a living and making candles when he wrote a song called Physical that Olivia Newton-John, you know, from uh, rags to riches almost overnight. And we watched that go down. The important part of that story is that he was in a studio doing a demo for physical and Olivia Newton-John was in the next room over and heard it and said to her people, I want that song. It's perfect. Actually, David, that is not actually correct. Oh, how uh, did I, 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 what happened was, is he wrote this song with a guy by the name of Steve Kipner and Steve Kipner went to play this, his, the, the song, he really liked the song. And he went to play the song at his lawyer's office in Century City. And on the other side of the wall of this office, they shared an office with the manager of Olivia Newton-John. And he heard it. And he said, this would be perfect for Olivia. And so they recorded, Olivia recorded it. And they knew it was a big hit. They knew it was a big hit. But the day it was about to go to pressing with the record, with the you know pressing of the record, Olivia called him up and said, hey, man, I have second thoughts about this. I don't think that this song should be me. I don't think I should put this song out. And he lied to her. He said, no, it's too late. We pressed it yesterday. And the rest, the rest is history. Now, here's another interesting story. Steve Kipner, when they negotiated this, had to give away half of his publishing. But he neglected to say that he had written the song with somebody else. So Steve didn't make the kind of money that Terry made because at that point then that the record was done, the deal had already been struck and Terry hadn't been included. So he didn't lose any of his writing or publishing. So he became very wealthy, very fast. And Steve Kipner still had to work for a living. Now I had heard, as part of that story, I had heard that Olivia wanted some of the publishing and that was the only way they were going to do the record. And Terry said, there's no way. Or maybe it was Pittman who said, there's no way. We keep 100% of the publishing. And she, they recorded it anyway. And that's what- No, they, 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 thought that, they thought that Steve Kipner owned the whole song. Hey, yeah, but Chris, he, what are you saying there? Hi, Jan. Let's see. We have to pin him to read, the, read what he's saying. So let's see yeah. what it is. Hi, Jan. Unmute me. You're <laughs> unmuted. Hi, Jan. How are you? But you can, you can unmute yourself. No, I think it's the you're you're the final arbiter of of muting. Oh, no, well, I, everybody has the ability to mute and unmute. Oh, I was unaware. This is well, Christopher again. Hi, Hello. everybody. This is my friend Curtis Matthewson, who lived just down the street from the Amundsens and knew them personally. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. But uh, Curtis is a uh, an, uh, wow, got a producer, engineer, guitarist, generally great guy. Mm. So Curtis, there we are. Did you did you did you know Parker Amundsen? Well, my mom did. I was just a little kid when they were socializing, you know. So yeah. so they ended up with a big house in Crowden Del Mar, overlooking the beach. Uh, the Amundsens, yeah, they had. There's they were. Yeah, Mary Almondson, I think, was the wife. 
maybe Marie or Mary. No, nah, I don't know that. I think I think Parker was like the 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 redheaded stepchild of the family. Yeah, I mean, I'm I was, sure. uh, I was, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty. Uh, I mean, I was just a little kid, you know, when when I was. My mom was a very social person in in the Newport Beach area, so I didn't really, you know, I knew them indirectly. I was just rubbing very elbow, cool. rubbing elbow. But they have a house. Very, very good. Or their kids, or whoever is left in that family, has the house in Bruno Del Mar. So, but it's a beautiful home, I gotta say. No, oh, I'm sure it is. When they're yeah. with that kind of money, but, uh, with that kind of money, it would be surprising if it wasn't. Did uh, Olivia and John? Did, did David J. Holman cut that track physical? Absolutely, David Holman. He sure did. In the studio, and we, we that was done in uh, Laurel Canyon. In his Laurel Canyon studio, you know he uh, he used to have his uh, Stevens tape machines. Uh, if, if, if I'm not mistaken, he had some of the original John Stevens tape machines. He was a great engineer, an uh, amazing engineer, and also very eccentric. Yeah, and I, and he yeah. he also he I actually loved working with the guy. He was you know. We worked on a bunch of different things. We worked on uh, the soundtrack for Meatballs. David Holman was uh, the engineer on that for us. We used them for a lot of different things at RSO. Um, wow. and, and one of the things was Olivia, her stuff. Um, the other thing that we, uh, the other thing that we used them for is he he uh, was the engineer and and uh, and uh, producer of the King Bee album, first King Bee's album. Wow. Did he do Greece as well? He did parts of Greece. He did some of Greece. I don't remember exactly what he did, but he did have some some doing with Greece, but not all of it. Yeah, he was great. He did uh, uh, the some of the early the third wave of ska bands. I think he worked with No Doubt. He kept having hits. Yeah, uh, David. Yeah, nice nice guy. I did record at his studio. Uh, I was friends with his assistant and somehow that assistant had a copy of a Queen record and so we were re remixing it all night for fun. Anyway, long story, I'll let it go. That's it. <laughs> very good, very cool. Nice to meet you. And nice thanks to for meet joining you. us. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking, speaking of uh, Greece, Jan, did you ever get your jacket to the Smithsonian? No, it's 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 uh it's sealed in a uh, well I wouldn't call it hermetically sealed bag, but it's in a it's in a it's in a uh, garment bag sitting in a, a dark space so it's not aging. Uh, I never got it there. <laughs> wow. You guys uh, have a just for those people don't know, I have one of the original jackets that John Travolta wore in the movie Grease, the T-Bird's jacket. Oh, wow. Holy cow. Pristine. Pristine. Did RSO Records, did they have anything to do with the cars? No, that was e, that was EA. That was uh, Electro Asylum. Okay. I hmm. saw them. I saw them at the Roxy Theater when they when they debuted that album. I was blown oh, wow. away. They were really good. Oh yeah, yeah. They 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 played a mixer at Harvard before they you know kind of had any traction in the music world. And my brother was was at the mixer and uh, they played it. It's just crazy, you know. Like for I don't know, there were maybe a hundred people there. Like a little party, <laughs> a little party. 
Yeah. Party with the cars in, in Cambridge. What a band. Yep. I mean, some engineers, some, you know, I worked for this guy, you know, going, talking about, I worked for this guy named Jeff Cook, who was like crazy out there. He was the one who came up with the concept for the Grateful Dead's Wall of Sound, all those four-inch neodymium drivers, you know? Oh, wow. And, and the reason I'm bringing him up is because he went so far out there. He invented a piece of hardware to hear voices in space, sounds in space. And that is on the Voyager 1 spaceship right now. That hardware oh, that he developed is on the cool. Voyager 1. And right now, the Voyager 1 just went, I mean, the, it, 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 stopped, it just stopped <laughs> communicating with Earth. And it is like zillions of miles away from Earth. I think it just went. I think it's. A, it just went out of our solar system. I, I uh, agree. I think. I think that is the case. It has. If Elvis left the building, Voyager has left the solar system. <laughs> yeah, and that is really crazy. What what you know what they did in those days before they had any you know real massive computer system. Yeah. So crazy. Super basic, unbelievable what they could get done with such a limited. Did, did the wall of sound actually work? Oh, God, yes, it sure worked. If anybody's yeah. ever seen a Grateful Dead, they used it for years and years and years and years. Okay. Right, Kurt? Oh, I, I didn't. I have never seen the Kurt, Grateful you're Dead. muted, too. You're muted, too. They used it for about 18 months and oh. they had two stages. It would okay. from one and two sets of scaffolding. So they're building the next concert while they're playing the first one. But the speakers, there's only one set of those. And uh, it was the cleanest system, probably as far as intermodulation distortion goes, it's still nothing could touch it today because not, wow. no two sources, no two sounds went through the same cabinet. So there's no IM at all. It's a line array decades before anybody modern even knew what a line array uh, was. And uh, it used to about 18 months because the uh, the gas crisis made it impossible. In fact, it, it was so financially stressful, they retired for two years afterwards just to regroup. Wow. That's just crazy. I wish I was able to see it. It was a little before my time. You can hear it a mile away. Clear as a bell. <laughs> oh, crazy. I never saw it either, of course. but I did. It was amazing. Yep. Beautiful. It was amazing. It was amazing. So uh, how did everybody celebrate Christmas? Did anybody do anything special or anybody celebrate with friends or family or? I don't know how to answer that. My <laughs> birthday's on Christmas Day. <laughs> I mean, he's born on Christmas, so it's kind of like that yeah. was the worst. I'm born on the 19th of December, and thank you very much for your birthday wishes, Jan. But uh, Oh, yes. I always... Whenever I was a kid, I got that lame, infinite excuse. Well, this is for your birthday and for Christmas, you know. So when you're born on Christmas Day, like Curtis, like all bets are off. You're just going to get one gift, and then they're going to say it's for both, and yeah, that's the end of yeah. it. And you're told where to be. You got to be there because everyone else is going to be there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then it's like, yeah. gosh, it's my birthday. I got to get out of here. <laughs> I got. I got. I got to tell you, Chris. I'm really surprised that your background. I can't see. I can't see the ultra rig that you've got now. I would. Oh. I would have expected that to be in the picture. I will. I've got this thing like glue. Oh, holy smoke! Something just went horribly wrong here. <laughs> 
Sorry. Okay. Oh, no. All right, here we are. So, I don't know. Can you see it there? Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah so that, the that's the... Uh, so, I, I just have one of the 900s. I mean, this place is so small that even the 900 is shaking the rafters. So, I got the X40 there on the ground, the 900, and then... My drum set, we just got done having a jam here, and then the other X40 is over in the corner. But uh, the neighbors are loving me, that's for sure. <laughs> Need to get those on stands, get them off the ground. Honestly, honestly what I am going Well, to he do has with... the stands. I gave him this. I, he bought the stands. I, I, I... At, at, at some point, I'm going to haul these up onto my roof on April Fool's Day and play like Amazon birds at six in the morning just to freak everybody out. That's very, very good of you. You're a good neighbor. Glad I'm not living in your neighborhood. I, I, I try to be. I try to be a good neighbor and just do good jokes. Of course, I could play massively, you know, resonating fart sounds that could be heard for miles. But uh, <laughs> anyway, the yeah. wall of sound on a smaller scale. Yeah, there was a period a of time. Yet, since this is my 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 time is a little bit. I don't know. I'm just meeting such amazing sound people in one very short condensed space of time that I have to ask you guys as veteran sound engineers, like has the transition from analog consoles like PM 3000s and stuff like that to the new digital world? I mean, has it been painful or has it been easy? <laughs> Kurt, you want to go first? <laughs> it's painful and... Uh... They don't sound any good. All right. Okay. I, I would agree with that too. I, I mean, was, they, they, they do a lot and they yeah. sound okay. But yeah. from a complete audiophile point of view, for me, I hear all of the digital. Okay. It bothers me. There's the, there's, there's, it's very 2D. It's kind of like a, a glass wall is there. There's no, yeah, depth. it doesn't have any depth. You don't hear through it. I hear the phase shift, it drives me nuts. So no. when I mix, I've got five gambles, and I use a gamble EX56. I own all the other stuff for the other guy that's going to because I have to. But if I get to mix, it's the gamble. If I get to mix, it's the gamble. A little delay going on, but yeah, thank you very much yeah. for that. I've noticed going on, but yeah, that's certain concerts, a change in the depth of sound. a change in the depth of sound. Yeah, it's very one-dimensional. Yeah. It's very hard to explain it uh, in technical terms, but I think a lot of it is just the phase shift. Yeah. The frequency response doesn't go as low or high because of the uh, ADD converters. And people always say, oh, well, you can't hear that. But hearing and perceiving are not necessarily the same thing. The other, the other because part you of can't it. test it in a, in a you know, audiologist lab doesn't mean that you don't experience things at those high and low frequencies that are just not there or if they're there they're so the sample rate is not fast enough to capture the wave in a way that's realistic to the human ear and the human brain there's too much stuff missing well i have to say the last good concert that i heard uh was roger waters uh when he toured the wall and i've come to read that the concert was all analog so yeah, there you McCartney go. is all uh well McCartney's monitor rig anyway is all analog. It's all okay. XL4s. 
And I, wow, I'm so pretty. They can hear the I latency. Am, yeah, XL fours. That's what he. That's what Roger Waters used. And uh, there's an engineer. But but Fred, you were saying something, Fred. I was saying that the, <clears throat> it was hard in the beginning because you have to learn the different sections of the console and the late and getting around the latency. But but everybody else is right. I I the only one that I kind of liked was the Euphonics. Um, but even then, you just it's just like there's no air in digital consoles. Everything sounds muddy to me. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, there's no there's no openness to it. It's just it's just you know something that's coming out of your speakers. Got it. Got it's it. It's like a modeler for a guitar amp. You know, they, <laughs> no matter how good they are, I've got an Axe FX three in the other next room. I haven't turned it on in three years. I mean, powered it up in three years because it can't touch my Mesa Triaxis or uh, deluxe or any of it yeah you can it's do 128 different. things but it doesn't do any of them well <laughs> that's a good point very good point and how old are your needs oh i've got some original uh 1081s from seven early 70s or whatever you know mid 70s yeah. are the black faced no those are the germanium ones i think mm -hmm. yeah well, the so. challenge is, is the challenge is, of course, just like the wall of sound was retired because it was too much money to transport. Right now, space at a concert is is at a premium, and uh, that's, so that's, the, I have to just completely disagree because video is ten times the size of what audio ever was, and oh, that's these, true. These modern digital consoles are for a full big concert, like you know, like Sully's doing or something like that. They have tons of outboard gear. The consoles is every bit as big as a gamble at this point. I mean, the idea that you're saving space and selling more seats, that's been out of the window for years. Yeah, but isn't uh, it true that video can be anywhere in the building and the audio has to be in the middle? Well, yes, but everything I've seen lately, with very few exceptions, they're all out together. I mean, there's some guys that are making the concert sound acceptable to a degree because they're incorporating a lot of outboard analog gear on the vocals and things like that. They're they're beefing up the sound and they're using the console as just a converter. Uh, can you elaborate on how? Uh, uh, you well, I think that, that's definitely a, a thing. But like, it always strikes me at Nam. You've got all these huge booths in the middle with all of these digital console makers and then all the way around are the people with a little card table and they're all trying to build something to make the thing in the middle sound good again <laughs> like, you know <laughs> why emulate something when you can just have the real thing why play through a axe effects when you can have a 66 deluxe right why i get the convenience of recall and all that stuff um yeah so that's the only yeah. real argument i can see for i it. get it yeah sonically well, i don't think it comes close and, and so do you think it's ever going to revert back to analog consoles? I can't imagine. I think there'll be some type of hybrid. There's already, I see a lot of uh, sort of people getting over the digital thing. You know, I mean, obviously I'm kind of a guy in a certain niche that, you know, but I mean, the Gamble, th that Gamble console group has 2,900 people in it now. I thought there'd be 10. <laughs> And so there's an interest and there are people who are, you know, look at what they're doing. Everybody's got all this analog outboard gear. They're hauling around again because they just, they can't get there with the plugins. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I just looked at an Allen and Heath over the weekend or past weekend, because uh, I got a system with Allen and Heath that's going down and 
they've got a new 32 channel linear board that's coming out that has all the auxiliaries to go in and out for the output, but then you still get the, the digital control that you can use your iPad to do monitor mix checks or something, uh, but or allow the band to do their in-ear controls. But um, they're sort of going to that hybrid that Kurt's talking about. Yeah, and Jim had that with the DCX. Um, it's the, you know, that was the first digitally controllable analog console. And he was just like everything else, he was 20 years too early and people couldn't handle the idea that they would mix on a laptop with a mouse. And now everybody mixes on a laptop with a mouse. So that was like the DCX the didn't was succeed. There's only the like eight. The Oxford wasn't before that, Kurt? What? The Sony Oxford wasn't before that? Uh, I'm sorry. Somebody in the studio, that, that might have been the first. You yeah. said the first. I saw they, somebody put a Sony Oxford in the truck, and that's how I got exposed to it because I'm a, I'm a sports guy. But then, and it was, a, it was an analog console that was digitally controlled, it sounded great. The problem, the biggest problem with it was it took 18 minutes to boot up. Oh! Well, but... <laughs> so if you, that... if you look power, it was 18 minutes before you were going to get a single sound out of the main bus of the console. Who, who yeah. made that? Sony. Sony, wow. And then well, if it went down, really... how long How long would your signal chain be off? 18. Would it take another 18 minutes? So, so you would be without any... <laughs> Any kind no, of signal for eighteen whole, minutes. No, the whole the whole console would come back, but it was it was a minimum of eighteen minutes before wow. you got signal out of the console again. Wow, I think Harrison had a similar desk for film mixing, and that was like about a million dollar desk, and all the it was very euphonics in the way that all of the analog electronics were in a tower that had to be cooled down, and that the console surface was just a controller ran on Windows ninety five. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, the yeah. DCX was like that. Um, it's racks of of I/O, you know, with gates and pops on every channel and all that. It's all analog, all the gamble mic pre's. So it sounds as good as the EX or maybe even better. Um, he, the thing that killed him on it was not building a, not letting anybody build a dedicated control surface. He knew um, that he wanted you to mix on a mouse or a touchscreen, but touchscreens were pretty good back then, and people wouldn't. To, they just couldn't handle the idea of mixing on a mouse. All right. Yeah, two ones. Now, da now, David, what about Artie? Didn't Artie have something like that as well? David, are you there? Uh, yeah, I couldn't get the audio on. Uh, Artie was working with uh, Bob Lentini in Software Audio Workshop and Software Audio Console. And uh, to do you guys know about that? Software? Yeah, that's a very similar thing. And actually, the guy you just mentioned did the graphic interface for Jim. So they look very similar. The difference is the SAC didn't have any high-end dedicated hardware for it. I mean, if you look at the old examples, they're using like Behringer rack mount mic pre's and stuff. So right. it might be similar in the way that it's the architecture, but the actual audio quality uh, between a, a gamble mic pre and the whatever mic pre because the sac was not didn't have hardware with it it's a software platform right. i think it had some hardware but as far as the mic pre's and all that stuff you had to rely on third-party stuff right 
so Behringer, Mike Pree is not going to cut it compared to a gamble. Just there's not even the same universe. <laughs> it's true. Um, can I say, and can then, I say, oh, sorry. Yeah, no. And then in Broadway, weren't they using a system called LCS and I think, or LSC? LCS um, no, is, LCS. The, is yeah. the panoramic and uh, programmable movement system that Meyer bought, bought absorbed. LCS and the whole company and that's the the original uh, uh, foundation for what's now Space Map Co. Ah. See, we learned something today, everybody. This is amazing. Yeah. thought that would happen. But, All right. Yeah, by the way, uh, uh, Elton John has been using uh, software audio console on his monitors for 20 years. Yeah, I'm yeah, not I'm saying not, it isn't a valid uh, thing. It's just you have to have the right kind of hardware. I'm sure Elton John is not using Behringer mic priest. He's probably yeah, got needs. I talked to their, their, uh, and I went to the show and I hung out with Alan Richardson, who's been his guy for all these years. And I asked him, I said, why are you using Behringer preamps? He says, that's what we had when we started and they loved it so much. They won't let me change it. Yeah. So, well, that's a, you know, <laughs> people who have, are, they, they don't want to fix what's not broken, but they don't understand that it could be much better than it is. They're just used to what it is. So I, I understand that approach. I mean, that's kind of like what Kenny talks about all the time with the singer guy. Well, yeah. yeah why fix what's broken? But at least it's not front of house, Berenger. <laughs> right. Well, you know, what I've found over the years selling every brand imaginable is that once somebody gets it in their head that they are using the best that there is, they justify it. No matter how you, no matter how bad it really is, they justify it. They could just, I, I've dealt with people that will justify that a JBL rig is the best rig ever built, you know, and no matter what, you know, or like a, a QSE amp is, you know, more advantageous to have than any other amp ever built. And it, it doesn't matter. Once you become a follower, you find the reasons why that what your brand is is the and the way you've manipulated it is better than anything else out there. And that is the way people live. That's true. It's like you, they drank their own Kool-Aid. Can I say to that, Jan, that sometimes in in because I'm a bit of an analog man, but I think that digital is magnificent nowadays. Um but I don't think it'll ever be as good as analog. But the the general person is quite accepted with the current digital. And, and some of those consoles, digital consoles, sound great. I think that what I notice the most is that you notice the compression because I think to convert, I've got to compress the dynamics somewhere. But anyway, going back to um, the different pieces of equipment, I always look at uh, who does the most research. And who tries? Because if 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 you want to reproduce the original waveform, a lot of us don't actually want to hear that. Does that make sense? Uh, anyway, the um, so so for example, say a JBL monitor back in the sixties, that was um, that was a very accurate monitor, but a lot of people didn't like that sound. Uh, whereas if you had a uh, a coloured uh, console or speaker a lot of people like that um, but I always followed the tried to look up the white papers of each of the manufacturer like Maya JBL 
you'd look at EVs and I, I'd go I'd go right across the board looking at each one. Um but um that, that's just my thoughts in the land of well, Behringer's at... R and D department is a guy with a screwdriver and a Polaroid. So Yes, well they they're building stuff building stuff to a price. But I don't think it's as different as it different as it used to be. I mean, obviously, if you go and get an Avalon or, you know, you know, some really serious mic preamps, they're going to sound much, much bigger and much, much better. Uh, their noise floor would be better. There's a whole bunch of things that come into play. Um, but uh, I just find that um, that, like you know, all the things, the advantages. I quite like the idea of, I mean, I'm, I'm a real analog person, but I quite like uh, if I'm on top of the console, I like using, quite happy using a digital board. I think it's more fun mixing on a, an a, uh, analog board with a whole bunch of outboard equipment. But there is a, you know, the 24-bit 96K is pretty, pretty good. The biggest thing I noticed is with a digital board, you always hear the grit in the top end if you push it. So, if you know, it always sounds a little gritty. You can get around that a little, yeah. But if you, I mean, I had, I mean, I'll go back to old school when I had two Yamaha. I, I had a Yamaha fifteen thirty two console, which is not an API, but it's not a, you know, it's probably not a, a big mile. But they were wonderful sounding boards and um, uh, huge amounts of headroom. They sounded great. Well, the, a properly um, designed analog circuit when it distorts and gets into overdrive can can be pleasant in the uh, adding the third yes. line, like a guitar amp does you know but a digital console just that doesn't work in digital you know and so mm -hmm. now you've got plugins to model an analog circuit being overdriven to try to make you know everyone's trying to make it sound like analog which i think a lot of people miss the point of why don't we just use analog yes i i tend to agree sometimes but the advantages of digital are just to the and, real and the younger people are, are into it are recall and if you have to do a show that has to have a certain sequence of events and and certain cues and it has to be repeatable every single night and sound like the record and all that other stuff, none of which I do. I have tours that come through and they do it and I give them a Digico or I give them an Avid or I give them a, a new Midas. I actually kind of like the new Midas and think it sounds pretty freaking good. Yeah. Coming from me. I can't believe I'm really saying that very much. The Digico drives me nuts. <laughs> Operations point of view. Well, it's nice to see that you have an open mind. You know, well, the I'm, question is: is how well, did the, how did the how did the digital how did the dig, the digital boards become so popular so fast when everybody in this room seems to think that the analog is a better sound? Because it was the console. hot new thing. If you went and tried to mix I, on one of the early digital boards, you'd hate it now. Well, I I think also to Kurt's point it's the venues that you're playing playing in and who you're listening to and and what you're trying to do i mean i would prefer to set if i'm doing a big outdoor stuff where i'm going to be there multiple days i'd prefer to go analog but when i'm doing something that i'm loading in and loading out the same day and i've got you know the people aren't worried about you know they're not paying hundred dollars a ticket and all this other stuff i may settle for digital just to so that i can get in and get out faster and a little couple more dollars well and, and they absolutely have their place in the context like that if you're doing a corporate event and you've got a disco hits of the 70s band coming in and you know use the m32 or the little yamaha or whatever to, to com completely make sense you know or even the the tours that don't have that kind of time you know i get it it makes sense um but 
I think another issue is that that there's an entire generation now of not only engineers, but musicians and audience who've never really actually heard a pure digital or pure, I'm sorry, analog console. And the, frankly, the stuff like the Panther rig that I have, when I run a gamble through that, that's the best sound system that a gamble has ever been run through. So they sounded great in 1989. They sound even better now because they're represented so much more accurately. Well, and Kurt, you make another point because boys radio, I mean, the only reason boys radio, boysy radio works is because people for years didn't hear the low ends in their car radio. So they thought that's how music supposed to sound. So, uh, you know. Well, and most music is listened to by people who buy uh, impulse buy $12 earbuds in the checkout line at Fred Meyer. So right. the, the, the reference that the references audience there. has is not anywhere near like what would have been when you had clips or, you know, something like that in your house. Yeah. Right. Kurt, quick. I have to say, you know, you've all been talking about how grand analog sounds and I'm certainly not going to argue with that, but for me, bouncing around between artists, bouncing around between venues, there's nothing like digital. There's nothing like being able to walk in and replicate what I had the night before. People don't hear what you're hearing. They hear a good show, they hear a good mix, and they walk out happy. And overall, digital has it way over analog when it comes to producing. And that's what I do. I produce a show. I make a great sounding show for people. And so as much as analog may sound better, it's not better enough for all the other advantages for me that I have. Well, yeah, I, like I said, they have their context and repeatability and everything is certainly hands down. It's a much better thing. I mean, I hopefully we'll get to a digitally controlled analog infrastructure again. And the layer, some of the stuff that you can do with digital is really cool. But yeah, the analog analog world was so much better. Yeah, I mean, I think something will pick up where the DCX kind of left off and that, you know, the there'll be an interest in getting back to the analog sound, but like a hybrid, basically, you know, an analog controlled digital console that can have analog inserts, has a completely analog path, but can load files. And, you know, there's a, there's a way to do them both. To it's your question earlier, Jan, I think, I think the whole reason a lot of people went digital was weight and space. Yeah. Originally. Absolutely. That oh yeah. A huge marketing thing. There used to be ads where, there'd be one guy carrying an LS9, you know, by himself. And they were talking about how you could move it yourself and it didn't weigh anything and it could do, and then they had all these racks of stuff and saying, or you could do this, you know, but if you, somebody told you you had to mix on an LS9 tonight, you'd be unhappy. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. You would be, you know, I mean, let, yeah. Like, I mean, uh, you know, like it would take, take four people to tip up a, a PM 4,000, you know, and those, you know, now one person or two people could do uh, you know, a Digico, you know, so it, you're right. Can I say that um, quantum boards um, that uh, whilst I'm, I'm an analog, I, I just did a show and I, obviously I don't do show shows the size of what all you fellas do, but I just did a show and I spent, the, the good part about digital is is that you can sit at home and prep your whole show. I even do um, monitor prepping and you've got it all loaded. If you're in a hurry and there's no time to check everything, I create my VCAs and you can plug it all in. long as the line check, you can put your mix together because you've created EQs, 
everything on the digital board. That's one of the things that you can't possibly do in, in analog as much as I love analog. So there is some huge advantages of, of, of the analog. Well, I just did a show 48 channels. There was stuff everywhere. And we, I was still plugging microphones in when the, when the, and it was a big band and they were changing, but I had the, I was quite comfortable because I had every, as long as the mic went in and it worked, I'd prepped the whole console upside down back for 92 channels, all the, even the monitor levels. So, and I was lucky because everything worked and everything was very, very close to where it needed to be. But, um, you know, whether it's as much fun as an analog board, I don't know, but it was, certainly makes me feel comfortable that you don't have to panic about, um, Although I have to say, Kurt, even though I know that uh, the LS9 is not a, gr I quite like them as a little walk-in. I had one, I had one for years, and uh, I, 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 I had uh, two sets of layers: one for monitors, one for front of house, and it's 19 kilos, and I could carry it in and and um, plug it all in, and um, I never had an issue with the sound of it. But uh, certainly, they're not a digico, and they're but they're still a good sounding board for what they are. The, uh, I got two in the shop. You want them? <laughs> I wouldn't mind one of them, <laughs> but they're getting a bit, they're getting a bit dated now. They're getting they haven't a bit been opened in five years or more, but, uh, well, this could be, so this could be your new year's resolution, Wayne. You know, I mean, everything you're saying about it, that's, I've already stressed that the recall is a huge thing, yeah, you know, it's, but it's, if you're touring with a big analog console, it's going to stay the same as it was when you left it and you, know, you, you don't zero it out every night. No. So in that sense, you, you are evolving and saving your preset. Um, yeah. And, yeah you know, we also did it that way long before I was doing it, you know, for 50, 60 years or whatever it was load in, set it up, do the show, take it apart. And it they, apart. You know, there are all kinds of festivals that happened with sharing a desk or stuff. So it's, it's not like it, I mean, that's how we did it for, way more than how we're doing it now. So, yeah, it's easy now, but that doesn't mean it's better. Although I have to say this, Kurt, um, whilst I've done exactly the same with the touring, you just, you close, if, you're, if you've got no support act, you just close the console analog. And I've done most of my uh, small touring with a with a analog board. So you just close, put the lid on and you open it up the next day and it's almost ready to go. But in festival mode, sometimes I didn't actually mind walking up to a, analog board where you had to start from where the person before left off because i see uh all the mega shows they have a central and they used to do an analog mode too but they have a central central digital but i'm hearing uh that they all run their own ethernet cables and have their own consoles and there's five or six consoles on the large shows at festivals yeah now, i understand I why do, they do that i, I hardly totally ever see them share desks rarely sometimes if the support act's small enough but we always have multiple desks and it's all got to go through a mix switch and all that other kind of stuff so the idea that you're saving space by sharing a desk nobody's willing to share so it almost never happens in, in my market anyway i have a quick question for kurt i'm just curious about the transition from class a b arrays now to class d amplifier you know self-powered mars i mean have, have you noticed anything coming from a b to, to d a lot lighter that's for sure um you know i've been a meyer guy for 
25 or more years. So I've, I've, I've got racks of Crest amps that I haven't touched in forever. But uh, I mean, the Fidelity is pretty stunning. And uh, the weight, you know, there's a place you can save some weight for sure. At truck pack and like Panther is 150 dB. It's incredibly efficient. It weighs 50 pounds less than its predecessor Lion. Uh, and it's just, it's in my opinion, stunning. It's, it's, it, you don't have to do that much to it. And then another thing I would say, Wayne, was, you know, if I've got to mix a band that I've never seen before and I'm never going to see again because I'm mixing support and I found out an hour ago at load in, then I'm much faster throwing a mix together on an analog, especially a gamble, than I would ever be trying to hunt around layers and menus and put in all this other stuff. And for me, it already sounds so much more like I want it to sound that I don't have to do all of these crazy plug-in chains to try to get it there. So I can throw a drummer or a BSS comp on a vocal and high pass it and bring up the fader and already basically be in a pretty acceptable spot. And then, you know, by the end of the second song, I'm starting to refine everything because rarely if I'm in that position, do I get more than about 10 minutes to sound, you know, a line checks about all I'm going to get. So I'm much faster on that without having to run around and jump pages and pages and menus and layers and turn on things. And I don't need multiband compression on every channel on an analog console because it already sounds good in the first place. So for me personally, I'm way faster on an analog console to throw uh, doing a throw and go than I ever would be on a digital. Oh, I'd have to agree, uh, Kurt. I did many, many festivals where I would be the front of house guy and and the band, no sound check or anything. I'd just do the start with my starting analog. If you if you've never worked with the band before, uh you can it's it's definitely for, unless you have a starting file, which is prepped you can always do it much easier quicker on an analog board i wouldn't say always but in most cases you can get it together quicker on an analog board well even just having access to a row of encoders uh, uh, pots you know you can change the game real fast you can put your hand on many faders you know there's a whole i did many many years of doing um uh festivals with and i was just doing front of house and you would change accent most of the time i've never never worked with the act before and um it would take me a couple of songs and i don't know what other people thought but i thought it was starting to get in, in the realm yeah the, um, if you walk up to say for example if you walked up to i do think the uh, yamaha digitals easier are, are easy to walk up to in general but the problem is there's all this hidden stuff that could be done that you don't know about and if you're just walking if you're on the on the console all day it's a bit different you sort of got your stuff going on but if you walked up to walk up to a, a a digico which is a great board or and and you and you're not sure what's going on <laughs> stuff could be going everywhere and you and you and you don't know right. where exactly the, the d live is pretty intuitive that's a pretty good festival oriented console their whole platform is very intuitive so oh, I, I... those two and i think they are great as far as that goes I think Wayne yeah, but you don't find a lot of D lads anymore. Yeah, but the the next generation of Allen Heath is getting some market penetration. So I think Wayne hit on it though too. Is this analog? I can walk up to just about any analog board and start with running with it. When I change brands and digitals, going from digital brand to digital brand, the naming convention's not the same. The layers are not the same. 
trying to find things are not the same. You have to really stop and think of whose brand you're using and how to get to it. Yeah, the I.O. patching is different in every desk. Right. That's the other thing that sucks about digital is you can even have two similar desks, but it depends on how they're integrated. Right. Your I.O. Your I.O. can be hooked up so many different ways because it's not it's not linear like it was an analog. You don't start at one and go to 72 or whatever. You could start at 50 and then jump to one and then go to 59 and then go, you know, and they just it's whoever integrates it. And it's it's crazy. I'm a student some um, solid state logic. When I first kind of got into the business, I loved SSL boards. And then when the digital line came out, I went to NAB one year and I asked the guy, I go, why can't I build a file on this desk right here, have an exact copy? I mean, an exact copy of the desk sitting right there, take the file of this desk and load it on that one and have it play. And you know why it didn't work? Because everything was based on the serial number of the fader. So you couldn't load an exact show with an exact copy. I mean, everything is exact. The $100,000 desk sitting next to a $100,000 desk with everything carbon copied. You cannot build a file on this desk and load it in that desk. How stupid was that? Do you think, do you think that's because the, um, the, the uh, resistance curve on the faders was different? No, no, because all the, all the parameters were based on the serial number of the fader. So your fader one had a number associated with it. No uh, other anywhere in the company has that serial number. So it doesn't matter. You can't take that file that you just built and load it into any other any other console other than the one you built it on. So that was the data point they used as an identifier for that function. Right. So what's, the, what's the point of recall? What's the point of having a geek stick? You might as well just save it on an internal hard drive. With us. Oh, grab, uh, well, I got 15 seconds to go back to work, so I'm going to be listening. Well, all I could say to you guys is I, I wish I could have been around because you guys have been around a long time. I wish I could have been there the first time you looked at a console and said, my God, a doghouse. What a great idea. You know? <laughs> yep. So I got another question. If you have a, um, and this is a digital based question, so with all the plugins and everything in digital mode, uh, and whilst they're all fantastic, you know, all the, um, all the whatever, you know, the waves and all those things, I often wonder if you, if I walk up to a console, a digital console, and you've got to do, you've got, I'm more worried about getting the mix together than I am plugging in my, because um, that creates a whole bunch of other technical um issues if you're in a hurry uh or even when you're not in a hurry but sometimes i wonder if i mean obviously i understand if you're doing a show and it's a major show and you've got all this fancy stuff going on in your plugins then you need it but sometimes i wonder about it's i'm more interested in putting the mix together than i am having uh 10 plugins or 20 plugins because usually i find uh that the 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 in onboard um, effects and goodies are all very good. Um, I, I, so I, I don't know. There seems to be a huge push for a million plugins on every board. And I go, you buy a hundred thousand dollar digital board, and then you want to plug in all these plugins. I don't know what other people's thoughts are. On Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. 
That's yeah, exactly can, correct. Can, can I just chime in here? I have such a beautiful corollary to what was just stated. So back in the old days, we had typewriters. Does anybody remember those? <laughs> and when I was first starting out in IT, we had IBM Selectric typewriters and word processors, most notably Wang and some of these other companies were coming out with text processors. And a couple of CEOs that I was dealing with trying to introduce technology into their company basically said, well, wait a minute. So the regular typo, uh, a typewriter is kind of an, an analog kind of, you know, thing for, so you would just type a letter and you had a few things. You had bold and maybe you could underline and you had just a few extra little functions. And you were given a dictation and the letter would get spit out and you would sign it and it would be sent off in the post. As soon as we got word processing, every document became a fucking mission to, to create the most beautiful looking thing you could possibly do. And given all of the things that you could do with a document on a word processor, the efficiency... Of, of secretaries and in the company were falling. They were actually getting less done because they were so involved with, with polishing it off, right? Because with the word processor, you, you could make it, you know, just perfect, you know, layouts and centering and all this other crap. And rather than just getting the work done, and I'm listening to this conversation and it brings me back to the to, to, you know, just an analog typewriter versus a digital word, word processing. I think I lost everybody there. Well, no, you didn't lose. I understand the concept. I'm sure everybody did, you know. Uh, you know, hey, it's, uh, you know, I, I remember getting us electric that had autocorrect. Unbelievable. You know, it had the white out oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And a ribbon. Where you could you backspace know? over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, that was a miracle, you know. You know, but going back to that way, I remember, I absolutely remember working away, you know, writing these notes for my boss and, uh, you know, and he said, hey, look, check out this thing. Instead of using the quill, here's a lead pencil. We just invented it, you know, and I remember, wow, lead pencil. This is amazing. And then he says, hey, check this out. We've got this thing called carbon paper now and you can have two copies Carbon paper. There you go. Recall the show with carbon paper. Exactly. <laughs> so there we were riding on my dinosaur, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, but look, no, things are changing and, and, you know, the things are changing everywhere. But the reality is the number one thing that any engineer is paid for is to create the best possible sound they can so that the audience has the best possible experience, period, end of story. And that has changed throughout the years. Whereas when I started going to do rock and roll, we always thought, man, if your ears were ringing at the end of the show, it was great sound. Little did we know that what we were hearing was distortion and it wasn't great sound. Nope. Well, it could be great sound, but it was very loud. <laughs> yeah, didn't have uh, to. the ringing ears and the listener fatigue and all that. A lot of that is, of that is issues and and chronic uh, distortion. Chronic distortion. If, if the budget was big enough and the room was big enough, the PA was barely pushing and it was still clean. Yeah, it was the cheap stuff that.
Yeah, well, and by I the mean, way, my first concerts yeah, that I went to, they were the speaker system. concerts that I went to, they were the speaker system. Oh, all right. I'm sorry, Dave, um, yes. but I had to mute you again because you, sorry, your feedback Dave, is coming um, through. But I had to mute And then, for whatever reason, you've got your feedback settings wrong on the Zoom meeting, so uh, you, you need to change them. But the reality is, is that my first, my first, my first, all right, let's see what happened here. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, the Altec Lansings, the voice of the theaters, that's what they had. Who uses those these days? Nobody, you know, so things, things change and things usually change for the best. But there is there is a whole world out there of people who think that the analog definitely sounds better than digital. But for the convenience of it all, digital is here to stay. Oh, I'd agree. Not going anywhere. I, I, I'm yep. just hoping that there'll be some sort of a evolution into more of a hybrid signal path. And I will say one more thing that you you mentioned briefly, Kurt, uh, in the beginning is about how people listen to their music these days. So. A lot of people they're using these little tiny earbuds in their in their ear that are really not giving them the full wavelength of all the music that's coming through, and people don't even appreciate it because, like when Neil Young came out with the ninety six k version player, it failed. It didn't do well, so people are happy with the Pono. The yeah. Pono. Yeah, yeah, this kind of triangle music player that wouldn't fit in your pocket and played flat files and you know there's there's this great youtube video out there i'm sure you guys have all seen it where the guy discusses you know basically taking a coke can which is the original recording and music and putting it in a much larger container with 192 bits and this all this other crap but it's still just a coke can in a big container and uh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I mean when I was when I was when we when I was working in the studio in the old days uh with Saturday Night Fever and well actually I didn't work in the studio on Saturday. I, I was just doing uh I was working on Saturday Night Fever, but I was more in quality control. But when we were in the studio, we would have a car speaker there so that they could so would the engineers could mix down so that they would know what people would be hearing it on their car stereo, you know? And so that's going that that's 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 the way people hear music. So as an engineer, your ears are much more fine tuned to hear the nuances and you understand it. But the average audience member, you know, they just want to be able to enjoy the concert and the best sound that you're going to give them is better than anything they're going to hear in any of the materials that they have to listen to it at their home or in their car or on their headsets. That's all there is to it. And so it's convenience and the portability of it all. I mean, that's why that's why all of a sudden Pro Tools became so popular because of the portability of the music where you could send someone a file and then they could mix it anywhere and then give it back to you. And then you you would you would be able to have that ability to create music from everywhere in the world. Well, another issue is there's an entire generation of people who that's how music sounds to them. They've 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 never heard it the other way. So I've had engineers come through who 
you know, couldn't believe the difference when I'm mixing support on the analog desk. Like they've never heard it before. They're like, what, what, what do you plugins are you using to make this happen like this? And I'm like, I point to the rack and I go, I plug that into it. You know, it, it's, it's a, they're educated that this is how things are supposed to sound. They've never heard a real desk. They've never heard an analog recording. Well, you know, there it's, you go. it's weird. I had three people come through last year through Bend and they found out about the EX sitting there and they left their tour digital console on the truck. And every one of them at the end of the night had a big grin and was very happy and thanked me for allowing me to let them use it. So I had zero pushback or backlash from the people who took a chance. And they were touring yeah. with digital desks. Well, so Jack, you know, you, you described oh, year, year and a half ago, maybe at the beginning of COVID, that you were in a studio in Nashville that was a custom made studio. It sounded like you were inside the music. Um, oh, Blackbird. Yes, I yeah, was. Is, uh, I, I was. I was. Uh, um, in his uh, what's I? I lost the word. What? What the. Um, McBride, um, McBride's place. Yeah, you know now that I know, I'm trying to remember the the tech the the. Uh, I just got Atmos. metal block on it. Atmos, Atmos, that's it. Yeah, I mean that was amazing. I'd never heard anything like that before. And that's what I think Kurt's relating to is most of our the there's a generation out there that doesn't know what it's like to listen to hi-fi music and um, having the full sounds. Yeah. Well, we you. Your job as an engineer is to create the best sound possible for them. So, you know, and you're not going to be able to train them, but they'll know the difference when they when they hear a good show. Just remember, you know, it, nothing has changed over time that the only time that the sound gets critiqued is when it's bad. <laughs> That's true. You know, someone's mic is on. Uh, Jan, yeah, there's a, I don't know if you can see that. Can you see that? Yeah. So that that was a system I put together in about the late '80s. You can see the old W's and the, the. Turn it sideways, Wayne. Yeah. That way. Is that better? There you there go. You, there go. you can see it. <laughs> so there's twenty-three fifties and. That's and, all tech glancing, no? No, nah, they're all JBLs. Oh, and, there and there's some 2380s and there's Roy boxes in there. There's, there's, and I did all the line array stuff. So yeah, so I've done all of them in a column, but two lots of them. And, and that actually system went quite bloody loud, I have to say. It was outdoors, of course, but anyway. <laughs> so there's a piece of trivia. Well, very good. well, thank you for sharing that. And with that, let's move on because we're getting we're, we're we're already way way over our time limit here. So I just wanted to wish everybody a very happy and a healthy New Year. Does anybody have any uh, New Year's resolutions that they want to share? Of what they're going to do? Kurt, are you going to convince people that, that they should go back to analog? Is that your <laughs> New Year's resolution? Yeah, I still mix up analog just from time to time. Hey, Josh. Yeah, I still mix on an analog desk every now and then. I still like it. I love mixing on analog desk. Well, most of us in the room learned on analog and digital came along. But, uh, you know, there's nothing, you know, like in, in the world of analog, there's nothing like analog. In the world of digital, there's nothing like digital. 
And there you have it. And I, I summed it all up. So, Kurt, um, I don't know where you are right now, but Wayne, what's your resolution for the year? You have any resolutions? Uh, save more money. Or I could probably try and buy a console. Maybe. There you go. Well, the other kind of people that, you know, like I hate to say it, but those are the those are the bet those are my worst clients. Those that either want to eat or buy a piece of electronic equipment. You know, I just uh, you know I I feel bad for those guys that uh, that they're in that position. But I'm glad that they have that attitude that they love what they do so much that they would rather sacrifice eating and have a good piece of gear uh, than have it the other way around. So congratulations, you 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 know that you're doing the right thing at the right time. I'd also like wish to you the best. Wish everyone a, a very happy new year, safe and happy new year. Well, with that, anybody else want to say anything before we say goodbye to those people that listened? I've got one. In here. Oh, yeah, please go ahead, Byron. Go ahead. No, guys, just saying I'm a high. I'm fine. All right, Brian. I have one. I have one little thing to sign off. It's something to think about. So I am. Um, have been taking uh, some drum lessons with a with a pretty good pro, and I asked him a question, and he was kind of blown away because it was the first time anybody had asked it. And I asked him, I said, "Look, you've had a bad day, you know, wife, family, work, you know, whatever it is, and you got to go out and play a show. What do you do?" How, how, how do you, you know, kind of let everything go and just go out and do what it is that you do? So he recommended that I read the book, The Inner Game of Tennis. And so I, I did. And The Inner Game of Tennis has probably got to be 30 or 40 years old. You could just Google Inner Game of Tennis PDF and just download it. I mean, it's it's it's, it's everywhere. But it, it was a very interesting thing that he said, which is, is that the basic thesis of, of the book is that there are two minds. There's the critical mind, which is like, okay, you know, got to make sure you got the stick in the fulcrum right and you're balanced and your, your, your foot you know, is all working and you're sitting right on your chair and all of this other stuff. This is kind of the critical mind. And then there's just the subconscious organic mind that knows how to play the drums or knows how to mix or knows how to play guitar or knows how to do all of these things. And, and so the basic thesis is how, how do you, how, how do you limit, limit or, you know, in, in the best case, eliminate the, the critical mind, just, just play or, you know, just mix and, and, yep. Very, very interesting. I would highly recommend it. It's a short read. It's 150 pages, double spaced, which is 75. And I mean, you can read the book literally in two hours. And and uh, it was a very interesting. He's just like you know, look, your your body knows how to play seven eight or you know seven sixteen or whatever it is. Just just let it play. You know, don't. Yep. get in get don't get in front of it and try to analyze it just feel it and play it don't think about it just do it 
And uh, that's actually right. That's exactly what it was. I, I carried that book with me. I used to play tennis and I had that book in my tennis bag all the time. I would read it during, you know, when I was no waiting way. for a match to start. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's a great book. Oh and it basically God. says you your body knows what to do. Let it exactly. Do it. Let and, it do uh, it. Don't overthink so I, it. I, yeah. So I've been playing the drums lately and I'll just go in and, and just say, OK, you know what? Today is critical mind. Yeah, I'm going to playing with a metronome and I'm going to be doing all of these different exercises and then I'll go in another day and just say, okay, you know, that's it. Just, just play, just let your body play and don't get involved. And I found myself doing fills inside of a song that I had, had never even contemplated and just, it just, it just came out just crazy. Um, yeah. Well, once you know what you're doing, you know, you let it, you you let your you let yourself relax and trust yourself, trust your instincts and don't overthink it. And that's the best way. That's a, that's a great resolution for the new year, Chris. Great. Just kind Absolutely. of a thought, but uh, yeah, just, just, you guys know how to mix, you know how to do all of this stuff. So just let go of the critical mind and just do it. And, and you'll be surprised at your results. Well, these guys, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard some of these people in this room mix, and they, they, uh, they have done a phenomenal job. They are spectacular in what they do, you know. Anyway, anybody else have anything they want to say before we say goodbye? Have a well, happy new year! Happy yeah. new year, everybody! Yeah. Uh, just remember, you just were, you just spent an hour and a half with thinking out loud with friends. You're more than welcome to be part of the panel. All you've got to do is DM any one of us, and we'll send you a, an invite. And just remember, you make it happen. You know, share the show if you liked it. Give it a thumbs up. Um, give a comment. Whatever it is you feel that you want to do to support us, that's great. And all I can say to you is, remember, you make it happen. Be safe be healthy and have a very happy and a healthy new year. And we will see you again next week for our 189th meeting. Take care. Bye-bye. Everybody. And we are off the air. Oh, fine. Now I can say what